Thanks, Kayla. Appreciate it. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Legacy Church, especially if you're a guest today. It's good to have you here. I know we have a child dedication afterward. Um, I'm, we usually call it a baby dedication, but COVID happened, so they all grew. So <laughs> it's more of a child dedication, toddler dedication than it is a baby dedication. Uh, but we're going to be in Lamentations today. Of all books, if you have a Bible or an app that you use, flip to Lamentations. Just open your Bible and turn left, okay? It's where the brand new pages are. In between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you have read it a whole sum of probably six times in your life maybe, right? And sure, because it's a book of, guess, guess now, it's Lamentations. Um, about five of them by what is believed to be Jeremiah as the author no one likes to read Lamentations. Uh, it's kind of like a eulogy almost in some ways, except this is the eulogy for a nation. So it's not some place we go when we want to get help. But it's going to be very helpful for us today. It's going to be a pretty key passage for us, especially in the series that we're going through on reclaiming families. And what I love about this passage, it's not just going to give us hope past bitterness, but it's going to show us a picture of Christ in a very clear and compelling way, right? Maybe a way that you didn't come in here um, having seen in Jesus before. So we're just going to start off by reading it. It's Lamentations 3, verse 19. We'll keep it up on the screen. And this will be the big passage for us today. And the prophet says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The prophet is saying, remember, as he's speaking to the Lord, remember my pain. It's wandering, it's homeless. It's pervasive. Remember my pain. Remember my bitterness because my soul will not let it go. And this is typical for the formula of a lament. Whenever we do our spiritual disciplines class here, we actually teach how to lament as a spiritual discipline. How you can, in certain seasons of life, connect to Christ much more tightly through the process of lament. And it always starts off with a very guttural and honest confession of what you feel before the Lord, which is what he's doing right here. But there's always a pivot, not towards what we want to feel as much as what we know about God. And that's what he does here. He says, yet you are enough for me. That's what he means when he says, you are my portion. You're enough for me. You satisfy me. I'm content because of you. And I trust you. Again, this is going to be good for us today. The last two weeks, um, as we've started this new study on how to reclaim families, last week we looked at the fact that your story is not your own, but your story, as interesting as it might be, was actually a result of millions of decisions that came before you, generations back and the generations before those generations, all leading you to the moment that you are right here, creatively and brilliantly thought by a very majestic and sovereign God, right? But even if we were to zoom way in tightly on your life, on your story, it's only really interesting because it is inlaid in a much bigger story, the story of God. The most interesting thing about us as people of God are the fact that the story that we're in is really got us as a footnote. It's about God. We are just a piece of it. 
And we also learned that not only is your story not your own story, but your future is not your own future. We steward and manage the goals, the mission, the, the, uh, the goals, the values that God has given us as we drive our families forward. And we do it with great resolve. We do it um, in a way that we exhaust ourselves to meet those goals as a family. And then we're able to rest at the same time because God, again, is sovereign. Today we learned that not only is our story not our own or our future, but our anger is not our own either. Meaning we do not have free reign to harbor a bitterness and a resentment when we walk through life. In fact, Jeremiah, he describes this destructive force as wormwood and gall. Not really words we use anymore. I used it the other day in front of a friend just to see his reaction, and he acted like he knew what I was talking about. I don't think he knew what I was talking about, right? Those were plants back then, right? Bitter plants. Gall could refer to bile as being something that's bitter, but there was a plant back then that was called gall as well. So these were, they might have been herbs that are helpful, but they were bitter. And that's what he means. Bitterness is a certain kind of anger. It's a slow cooking anger. It just kind of sits and simmers for years, decades even. The Holman Christian Standard, a different translation of the Bible I just read, says, I continually remember and have become depressed. Right? It's hard to be angry correctly. You know, you can be angry correctly. It's just hard. This is what Aristotle said many moons ago. He says, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. You see, you could be angry to the glory of God. We know that because of the life of Christ and how he walked. You can be angry to the glory of God, but there is no correct God-glorifying way to be resentful or bitter. It's not possible. The thing about bitterness is it grows subtly and it accumulates grievances over a long period of time. Kind of like a bank account that grows interest. It's just slow, daily bitterness accrues, destroying relationships that you have around you. The one with the person that has aggrieved you, the, um, just your family, those in community with you, God, it destroys all of your relationships. This is how the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 12. Stay where you're at in Lamentations. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness. He's talking about a root. Root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See, roots, they drive down deep, they anchor, they look for nourishment. And what's deceptive about the root of bitterness is that by the time it makes its public appearance, it's almost played itself out. It almost feels like it's too late to fix it, right? You've probably been in conversations with somebody that the temperature starts to go up and mean things start to get said, and then all of a sudden comes rolling out of their mouth something, something that in your mind you think, okay, well, I'm dealing with something that obviously you've been holding on to for several years. Like I didn't know that that was even an issue, and here it is, and now I've got to contend with it. For 22 years now in the ministry, and probably before that even, I've watched families blow up. And it's not typically tragedies or crisis that will blow a family up. In fact, sometimes that will pull a family together. But what I see often is a point of resentment that grew a root and became a bitterness that was groomed for years. 
And that will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a family. Something comes out in that inopportune moment that has been harbored for years. And by then, the anger is so deep and the wound is so raw and so chaotic that it feels like it's out of control and there's nothing you can do. It feels like it's too late. Listen, I'm still a young pastor. I've seen a lot destroy families. But resentment and bitterness, that's a bad actor I usually always see in those moments. When you hear stories of parents who are disowning their kids or kids who are disowning their parents or civil wars in between siblings or spouses that are more partners than lovers and then maybe even enemies, it's going to be wormwood and it is going to be gall that it is at play because, as he says, we continually remember, always remembering. It just operates in the subtle background of our daily like, a, like an app, running in the background, seeing things, seeing an offense, accumulating that offense, and then stacking it like firewood with all the other offenses until that time. And then everything breaks forth, right? You, you, you probably hear this if you fight with your spouse or you fight with someone in your family. This is when you will usually hear extreme words used, like you never or you always. Be careful of those words in fights, by the way. Be cognizant whenever you catch a word like that come out of your mouth. You do this all the time, we might say, to, to hear in return, well, oh yeah? Well, let me tell you something about yourself you didn't know all these years. I only do that all the time because you do this all the time. Well, I wouldn't do that all the time if you would just stop doing this all the time. Oh yeah, well, you're just like your mom, right? <laughs> you're just like your dad. Oh, yeah? And then it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. What are you seeing in that moment besides your memory being weaponized, right? So much has been accruing in the dark, accruing and accruing and accruing, and then you make a deposit. Then you make a deposit. And we can feed it. You can groom this bitterness over time. And it builds what we call a victim narrative, right? It's where we are victims now. Grievances pile on, we become victims, we stack more grievances, and then moments like birthdays, Thanksgiving, family reunions, they become battlegrounds. They become moments where stuff just comes out. And it evolves so quickly in our minds, too. I want you to just think of a random thing, like a party where you're with family, or something where you're around friends and family, tight people, people that love you, right? Maybe you get up. Maybe it's a Super Bowl. Let's say it's a Super Bowl, right? You get up, and they're like, hey, are you getting up to get more food? Yes, I am. Will you give me some more bean dip? Sure, right? So you're going to get bean dip because everyone loves bean dip. Got a plate of bean dip and some chips, and you're kind of craning your neck because you don't want to miss the play. Arm bumps the chair. You dump the bean dip on the floor, right? First thing in your mind is, is gosh, I don't want to clean that dip up, right? You start cleaning it up, and then what happens? Why am I cleaning this up, right? See how it does it? Real quick, why am I cleaning this up? I wouldn't be doing this if they'd come in here and got their own plate. They're still watching the game. They don't even see that I'm cleaning their dip up, right? They don't even see this. And you know what? They never see anything I do around here. They never see anything I do around here. What am I, their servants? I'm always doing stuff. Listen, I had dreams. I had dreams. I have a life. And look at me. And you see how it goes from, crap, i got to pick that up, to I had dreams, you know. But that's how it moves in our mind. It starts small and subtle, and then it just graduates to what about me? Now, that alone is not going to break a relationship. It's not going to break a marriage. A thousand of them will. A thousand of them will crack it in half because they amplify the victim narrative. 
Victims feel victimized. That's how it works. A perpetual victim. You see them in conversations where they speak out and they can't even see around. They're locked up. They're trapped in their bitterness. Right? I always think of Martha and Mary. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I mean, literally, it's in the top five. And it's because I'm such a Martha, right? I always envision Mary just sitting there listening, bright eyes, Martha spinning through the room, grabbing stuff. She's got like a tray. I imagine her coming in the door backwards and it swings open because she doesn't even have an extra arm to open up the door. And she's got, she's just busy and she's thinking 10 steps ahead so that everybody else can have a great day, right? That's how Martha's are. And that's what she's thinking. She's strategizing on how to create a hospitable environment while Mary's doing what? What Mary always does, right? I mean, that's not what's being taught. I can't teach this. I'm going to submit it. You can do whatever you want with it. But listen to what she says to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Okay, question. You think this is the first time Mary's done something like this? You think this is the first time Martha has taken note? No, come on. Mary was always sitting around. And Martha was always working. In Finally, she has an audience. Finally, she can get Jesus to jump in and fix this thing that's always been a problem. That's how I imagined it anyway. Jesus, you see. Jesus, you see now, don't you? Don't you? It's bitterness. When bitter, we feel misunderstood. We feel alone, used. We feel rejected. It becomes who we are, and we carry it everywhere. Carry it to work. Carry it here. Carried into our community groups, carried into our marriages, and as it says in Hebrews, many become defiled. Many become defiled. Now, truth be told, I think community is the perfect place to work this out. We've worked really hard over the last 10 years to build a church where you are free to unpack that stuff, what has been done to you when you were vulnerable, by people who should have loved you. We've worked really hard to do that. But it's good for you to know that the bitterness that you harbor for that one person at that one time in that one place, you are extending it to others around you. You are carrying it to others around you. I had a good friend tell me here recently, Luke, just because you turned the water off in one area, it doesn't mean it's not running somewhere else. A wife with a distant husband, a husband with a cold wife, an injured son or daughter. We, we want those pains to stay localized, and we think that they are. We think that our bitterness is aimed in one direction, but it will fold over and visit every relationship we have. Might not intend on it. See, bitter people, we like to protect ourselves, to firewall ourselves from further damage, to buffer ourselves. It builds a cloak. Resentment builds a cloak around us. And that might be you today, damaged, and you can kind of sense it, a little bit of an edge to you. That person did something and you don't want to get close to them. It might be hard for you to get close into a, a community gathering, a church gathering. And let me just be honest, if it's a real good church, you will get hurt again. If you're vulnerable and you are open and you are laid bare, you will get some dings and you will get some dents. But if you don't, and you decide you're not going to let anyone that close again to hurt you, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point, doesn't it? Then nobody knows you. Nobody understands you. Right? Maybe you had a mean dad. 
a cold spouse, disrespectful child, a jerk sibling. Maybe your past family, maybe your current one has made you feel like a victim. Know that if bitterness grows a root, it will roll over and many in your life will become defiled. And I think also probably just as damaging, it keeps you from seeing your own trash. Because victims don't need to repent, do they? Nah, not in our heads anyway. It's their fault, not our fault, right? Therefore, the other person, they've got to do something. They've got to come and make it right so we can get unlocked, so we can move forward, so we can live our life. They need to do something. And if that's the case, someone else has started to define our life instead of Jesus. You see, bitterness is my intended target today, and I know you've seen that already, but I want to apply it to family because that's when it gets really acrid. That's when it gets really hard. It's ripping families apart. You could go to the front page of our website and scroll down, and you can go to the Reclaiming Families website, and you'll see a blog that says when those who are close to us hurt us or when friendly fire makes us bitter because the closer people are in proximity, the more their betrayal hurts the more the wound is open. And what the pandemic did, if it did anything, is it put all of us in isolation chambers with those who are closest to us. And the gall and the wormwood, they had no place to hide, right? Even if you could just snap a a smile on cue and you take really great family pictures, listen, wormwood and gall, we can carry it around real easily. From experience, I've been damaged by people in the past that should have loved me. And when they did, I got bitter. And I lived for years with wormwood and with gall. And you know what I wanted the whole time? Same thing you want. I wanted my enemy to feel justice. I wanted my side of the story to be heard, understood, experienced. That's what I wanted. I wanted it to be believed. It was vindication I was craving. I wanted vengeance and I wanted vindication and they came hand in hand. And what I wanted, no one on this earth could give me. I can't get that from anyone else. Vindication doesn't belong to me. Vengeance isn't a tool I should be using. We looked at this a few months ago. How vengeance doesn't belong to us and we don't do a great job with it whenever we try to use it. God himself says it belongs to me. But that leaves you and me with our big bag of bitterness. What do we do with it? What do we do with that level of resent? That's where I want to take you to John 19. You can stay in Lamentations if you want because we're going to finish on Lamentations. And we'll put this up on the screen. But in John 19, we're at the end of Jesus' life. I'm going to jump into verse 28. We're only going to read a couple verses. He says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It's the death of Jesus. I want to take a look at the wine just for a moment. Some of you might be confused because you're like, well, I thought he did not take the wine. It was actually twice in his final hours where he was offered wine. Okay, The first one, it was mixed with myrrh, which is a numbing agent. It was an anesthetic of sorts. And that was offered to him by people who loved him, who wanted the pain to be cut short. They had care for him. That's the wine he refused. Why would he do that, you'd ask? 
He needed to experience the fullness and the depth and the outer reaches of what the cross would handle. That's what he was doing. He wasn't going to shortcut the cross. So he refused that. I would have done the opposite. The second wine was a sour wine, a bitter wine, and that was given to him to keep him alive as long as possible. That was a, that was a form of contempt and mockery, to keep him conscious as long as possible up on the cross. It's just a common wine. It was, people drank it all the time. The soldiers would have had it. I mean, there was just a jar of it laying there. And it was a little bit sour. It was a little bit bitter because that's what happens when cheap wine sits out in the open, right? Listen, you go to Trader Joe's today and you get yourself a cheap just thing of wine, five or six bucks. And some of, some of you are like, is that cheap? That's a lot for us. Well, that's cheap wine. If you spend five or six bucks, you better cork it well because by Thursday it's going to taste like foot, right? It just goes bad. That's what wine does. But it was still safer to drink back then than water was. So they always had wine sitting around. It's common wine. It was kind of sour, kind of bitter. It was not given to him out of hospitality, but as a way to prolong his pain, like a Gatorade or something to keep him going on the cross. This is the wine Jesus drank. You and I, we would have done the opposite. We would have rejected that wine, and we would have taken the wine that would have shortcut the pain and the excruciating moment on the cross. That's what Jesus did. Think about the mockery that was to Jesus while he was on the cross. Consider that for a moment. That is God laid bare before all mankind. That is fully God and fully man. That is the God-man, naked, exposed, vulnerable, capital V, vulnerable, and laid bare before mankind. And what do we do? We shovel contempt towards him. We mock him. We mock him. I would have been bitter. I would have been bitter. Jesus who was tempted in every way that we are tempted, was tempted to be bitter. And although he took that bitter wine, there was no root of bitterness that grew in him. Instead, he cried out for my benefit. Cried out for your benefit, right? Even though we are the mockers, we would have been the ones prolonging his pain. We would have been the villains. It's so easy in this moment to say, not me. Not me. I'd have got a little gang together. We would have tried to get him off that cross. No, you wouldn't have. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the gospel. He finds us as villains. Listen, the people that walked with him for years ran. You would have been a soldier maybe. Maybe you would have struck him. Maybe you would have laughed. Maybe you would have just turned your head and go on about your day. But that would have been us. And he cries out for our benefit when we deserved the wrath that would have come from bitterness and resentment. Now, why, why is this important for us today when we're talking about family? And bitterness. Because when broken people and broken situations push contempt on us, when we are vulnerable and exposed before them, you and I are going to be tempted to carry the gall and the wormwood for years even. And we can get very used to the victim mask and prefer the victim narrative. But I want you to catch that we have an opportunity to share a hard moment with Jesus whenever we are offended and hurt and are tempted to be bitter. And we can choose blessing instead as he did from the cross. I mean, friend, listen, there are a few times that you are more like Christ than when suffering unjustly by the hands of those who should have loved you. A few times. If we claim we want to become more like Jesus, this is the suffering that will accomplish that over time. Right? And I know the struggle that's happening with you right now is happening with me. 
even as I say this out loud, because vengeance comes along and it convinces us that we'll never be whole again if we let that happen, right? Oh, you'll feel so much better if you just do that thing, say that thing. You will feel so much better if you just ignore them, right? You will feel so much better if you get them right now. That little thing that you've been thinking in your head, rehearsing, that little thing you've been wanting to say, now's the time. Now's the time. Throw that curveball. They're not expecting it, right? We feel it will make us whole again. It will restore us. This is what Paul says to the Roman church. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, repay says the Lord. Yeah, Paul, but if I leave vindication to God, I won't feel satisfied. I want vindication. That's where the battle, that's where the battle is. Listen, we're, you can see already, we are hopeless without the Holy Spirit. Right? If not for the Holy Spirit guiding us towards this gospel template, if we are without the Holy Spirit reminding us of the freedom that we have, we are all just looking for moments to return fire on those who have hurt us. You live a whole life doing that. I mean, even if, if you're watching this online or you're here today and you're searching for Jesus maybe more curiously than resolved, maybe you're far from God and you know that, haven't you noticed that you've been unable to dump that bitterness, that resentment for past damages? Haven't you known that it's not worked? Haven't you said enough things thinking it was going to make you feel better and it just didn't? Let me ask you, who are you most bitter with right now, today? What if they're in your family? Let's just focus on your family, right? Who are you most bitter with? I mean, you just the picture of them walking in the room just kind of ruins the moment for you, right? You look them up on Facebook, you secretly hope they're not doing good, right? You look for evidence that they're doing horrible so that you could rejoice a little bit inside. You go to where it says where they work and it says unemployed and you kind of fist pump, they're unemployed, good, you know? Who is that for you? Family reunions, you hope they don't come. You thought they were an ally and they handed you bitter wine. Maybe you can forgive them for just for like six minutes. And then you're mad again, angry. Forgive them again, you go right back to anger. Forgive anger, forgive anger over and over and over again. What do you do with that? What do we do with that? He tells us in Lamentations, of all places. Lamentations, the very end of that passage that we read when we started this, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here it is. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Saying God is enough. That's what we do. We come to the place where God is better. More God is better than vindication. More God is better than the victim narrative that we love to build and carry with us everywhere. And again, bitterness is coming to speak. Don't do it. Don't release that person. Don't forgive them. You'll never be whole again if you do. And Jesus says something different. He says, every reproach you've carried against God has fallen upon me. Fallen upon me. This is the definition of what a gospel-formed life will do to the bitter of heart. Where we say God is better. He is my portion. He is my satisfaction. He is who makes me content. I can trust him. 
How do I know I can trust him? He's shown me in the gospel he is trustworthy. He's shown me in the gospel that his mercies actually never do end. He's shown me in the gospel that his love really is steadfast through generation and generation and generation and generation and generation. So maybe there's a few things we can do to maybe groom more of a less bitter heart and a more gospel-framed life when it comes to resentment. One is we could recognize our own sin as God sees it and just add a little perspective. Your willingness to forgive others is directly proportional to your awareness and your honesty with the big bucket of sins you bring to the cross, the enormity of what you have done, right? And an acknowledgement that what you did was expensive to forgive. The gospel is an expensive story. It wasn't cheaply given from the cross. If we're blind to the enormity of our sin, we just become self-righteous. Bitter people, not always so motivated to forgive. But if we find the perspective in the gospel, then we can get to a place where we say, look what God has done for me. He was vulnerable. He was shown contempt. He was tempted to be bitter, and yet he treasured me. He treasured me. He pursued me. He loved me. He pulled me close. He called me son. He called me daughter. He called me friend. Another thing we can do is become comfortable with the idea that God's justice is better than our own. When I feel victimized and I'm tempted to be cynical, there is a deep comfort in the knowledge that God's justice will prevail, right? It's got to be for you too. The, the fact that all wrongs will be righted, right? It's the, the peace of resting in the fact that our judge is a good, good judge. But here's the thing. On the day that my adversary's sin will be known, mine will too. Mine will too. A little bit more terrifying. Mine's going to be known as well. And when that happens, God's mercies Thank God they never end. It's all I'm going to have to hold on to. God's grace is all I have to cling to, all I have to hide behind. God's work for me, it's all I have. Else I'm just like the person. I'm not superior to the person that hurt me. I'm in the exact same boat as the person who hurt me. I'd be ruined if it wasn't for grace, if it wasn't for the gospel. Third is our forgiveness will cause us to break a sweat if we do it right. If we do it right. Often our spouse or our kids or our parents or our siblings or anyone in our greater family, the church, will hurt us. And we'll forgive and we'll forgive, but we'll notice that the hurt doesn't go away. The wound is still raw, still very easily triggered. I mean, listen, you can't control that feeling, right? You can control what you do with the feeling. You can't control what springs up in you. It's just there. But you can control what you do with it. And forgiveness is an exercise in repetition. We hope that feelings will come, but the thing about that is, is perseverance will always come before new feelings. I mean, I want you to think about this moment that Peter has with Jesus, and this is in Matthew 18. You can look it up on your own. Stay in Lamentations. But when Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Seven? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Listen, (laughs) Peter was not, like, writing that down in his journal going, hmm, that's wise. I knew something wise would come, you know. He was hoping that he was going to give him a number. He was looking for a number. He was hoping that Jesus would say, ah, that's a good question, Peter. I don't know. What do you think? Like nine? Like nine times? Eight? I mean, it's realistic. Seven. Seven's a good time, right? That's a, that's a good amount of time. 
And, and for Peter to go, yeah, seven sounds good because that guy's got me six times. I only got one left with this guy, and then he's done. That's what he was expecting. He didn't get it. Seventy-seven is biblical symbolism for a never-ending persistence. Never-ending. He was not wanting to hear that. But here's the thing. Forgiveness does not mean silence. You can share how you feel about the matter. In fact, it's healthy if you do. Have a conversation. What is that person, your adversary, doing against God? How can you help them see that? How can you have a good dialogue with how they're hurting you? Let them know that they're damaging you. Bitterness is a root that has a hard time thriving in the sunlight. And listen, here's a caveat. Anytime I talk about forgiveness in this level, I have to put this in there. Forgiveness is a posture that we're called to, right? Now, the biblical idea of forgiveness usually, most often, is going to have reconciliation on the tail end of it. Reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. Reconciliation is where enemies become friends. Relationships are restored, right? And, and, and I'd say probably 99 out of 100 times, reconciliation is possible. There will be a couple of occasions, like in the occasion of abuse, where reconciliation is not so wise, right? Where it might be too difficult to worship in the same room, to be buds again, to be in the same proximity again. There are limited, very limited moments where reconciliation is going to be a little bit more hard to grasp. But forgiveness as a posture is something we are all commanded to do. Now, the thing I've caught Christians doing is they hide behind this clause and they'll say something like, well, I forgive them, but I just can't see them anymore. I forgive them, but I'm going to go to a different church, right? I forgive them, but we're just going to go our separate ways. What are you hearing when you hear that? Bitterness. Bitterness. I've forgiven them. I will never be around them, vulnerable, honest with nothing. They're done. There might be a time where being vulnerable before someone who has hurt you is unwise. And listen, if you're confused by your situation, by the way, and you want some counsel, we're here to help you with that. You can talk to me. You can talk to any of the pastors here. We'll help you unpack whatever the situation is. And we can help you see what reconciliation could look like, should look like. But let me just tell you, forgiveness is on the table in every situation. Okay? All right. Finally, be open to the possibility that your hurt feelings and bitterness are unjustified. It's possible you are hurt about something you should not be hurt about. We delude ourselves often. Are you expecting things from someone else that you have no right to expect from them? Right? You're waiting for them to repent. And guess what? You need to repent. Repent for the being bitter being resentful. Again, let me encourage you. God is a just judge. God knows your pain and your situation better than you do because he knows why you feel the way that you feel. He is, he is more in touch with your side of the story than you are. That's amazing, right? We think no one knows our side as much as we do. He knows your side better than you do. He also knows the other person's side better than they do, and he knows the truth that's banging around somewhere in between. And it is. Let's be honest. It's there in between. God knows. Every justification I want to raise is already known. So instead of trying to figure out how to make my side of the story known, I'm free to keep my words few. I'm free to do that. I'm free to embrace. 
I'm free to repent. We have a lot to repent for, honestly. As we look at a passage like this, we have room to repent for letting a root of bitterness rob us of the freedom that we have in the gospel to be vibrant and build beautiful relationships. We have room to repent for minimizing our sins against God while we maximize everybody else's sin against us. We have room to repent for wearing a victim's cloak and living a victim's life and allowing that to define us more than the gospel itself. There is a lot to turn from in a passage like this. And listen, if you are lost, far from Christ, looking for Christ, watching this because your mom sent you the video link or whatever, can we agree that resentment does damage that you have never found a remedy for? Forgive and forget. You tell yourself that's what you're doing, but you're harboring and remembering, harboring and remembering, harboring and remembering. Maybe we can agree that you've hidden behind being a victim and it's not made your life any better. It's destroying it and all the relationships that are around it. Your only freedom is going to be found in trusting that God's portion in Jesus is enough. That he is enough for you. Jesus frees us from debilitating bitterness. He does not say that the damage done against you is okay. But he instead says he wears the penalty for it. He wears the penalty for it on his own life. Like Jeremiah, let your lament pivot to a declaration and a confession of the preeminent beauty and glory of God. That's my submission to you. That's my submission to you. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to take communion together. And if you are a guest here and you're a Christian, we invite you to take this communion with us. Um, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about that. Don't, don't worry about this cup and this little wafer. It's... it's it, I'd rather you submit yourself to considering Christ than how to open up this thing and, and not look like an outsider, right? Because uh, I've, been, I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't even open this thing up very well and not look like an outsider. So I just want you to enjoy what the gospel brings to those and the good news it is to those of us who are looking. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that some, I'll call them traditions, not denominations, but there are some traditions in the church that when they bring wine to this moment, they make sure that it's a bitter wine. Isn't that interesting? They make sure that it's sour, right? But partly because of John that we just read. We're in a school, we use juice, right, because they won't let us have wine here. If we had our own facility, probably going to have wine. Whether it's going to be sour or bitter, I don't know. We're probably a couple staff meetings away from figuring that out. But I could see why they do that, right? I could see why they do that because it is a reflection of how Christ drank every drop of the wrath of God for the wrath that we deserved. It's a remembrance of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, even down to the bitter taste of what we did to him to show contempt while he was at his most vulnerable. It's amazing to me. It gives us a moment to remember the cross was fully experienced so that you and I can experience a new banquet where the wine is not sour, where it's not bitter, So let me pray for you as we take this. Father, we thank you for being good and kind. And Lord, when you were tempted to be bitter and resentful, you showered us with blessing and you adopted us. You grafted us into a family we have no business being in. 
We were villains doing our worst. We're scandalous people being found doing our worst. And what you did from the cross, what you did from the cross is nothing short of amazing. The grace you give to us, despite us, the favor you give to us, totally despite us, is unfathomable. So as we take bread and juice, as we do this in remembrance of you, we're just remembering to the best of our ability. We can't comprehend everything that you did for us, but we're going to do our best. So Lord, we take this bread as a symbol of your broken body and as a foretaste of the kingdom that you're bringing. And Lord, this wine, which is just juice for us, it's not bitter. We take it in remembrance of what was bitter. And not just that, that the blood that was let out is royal blood that hit the ground. Royal blood that villains drew from you. You were vulnerable before those who were supposed to love you. You were laid bare before those who were supposed to follow you, adore you magnify you, exalt you. And so we take this in remembrance of that and as a foretaste of the wine that is to come in the new age. Father, I pray that you are with those who are watching or are here today that have really had a heck of a time dealing with bitterness. They don't even know the far reaches of how far the root of bitterness goes, but they have seen relationships blow up. They have not experienced satisfaction. They've not been able to take a deep breath. They are still searching for vindication. They are still using vengeance as a tool, praying for vengeance, hoping for vengeance. Lord, help us to get a glimpse of the gospel in a real and fresh way. Lord, by your spirit, change our heart that we can look at you and say, yeah, that's enough. That's enough. Just a little bit of that can make me satisfied for an eternity. Just a little bit of more of God is greater than anything I can gain here. And Lord, instead of being fascinated with what's happening to our enemies, being fascinated with how you handled us as an enemy, change our hearts, Lord. Change our hearts. I'm going to finish just reading the last sentence of lamentation. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's the extreme language he uses. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen and amen.